Greetings, my name's Andrew Sumner. My grandfather, Pop Smythe, bought me my first comic book in Liverpool, England when I was three years old, and I spent the next 50 years hurtling around the pop culture kaleidoscope, first as a fan and then as a journalist, editor, publisher and presenter. Along the way, I met a bunch of interesting people who will be joining me here. Creators, performers, professionals and public servants. We live in divisive, fractured times, but art and popular culture connect people from all viewpoints and from all walks of life. I'm often struck by the passions people enjoy, that they can set aside their differences for and agree on, whatever those passions are, whether I share them or not. And that spark, that moment of instinctive, connective agreement, that's what I call a hard agree. So uh, let's just ease in with some gentle conversation. How have you been, mate? I've been okay. Yeah, now that things are getting back to normal quite a bit here, it's it's very strange getting back out into the world, but I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, no, me too, mate. Me too. I'm in my 12th year at Rhino, and I love it. I, I, I you know, it's not very many people can say they're doing what they dreamed of as a kid. I'm one of the lucky few, very lucky and fortunate. And am I right in thinking that right at, at this moment in time, your job title is um, Senior Vice President of Fan Engagement and Insights? Is that correct? Almost. Uh, fan Engagement and Innovation. Innovation, really, man. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just a fancy way, uh, fancy pants way of saying I try to find new ways to make people bump into our catalog, no matter yeah. where they live on the internet or other means. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I know it's it's a it's it's a brilliant title. It does really reflect a, a lot of the things that you know you have spearheaded in the last couple of years. So, welcome to Hard Agree. I'm Andrew Sumner. I'm here with my friend John Hughes from Rhino Entertainment, and John has had a, a fascinating career, and uh, like myself, is is a big comic book fan. In addition to being a mover and shaker in the in the in the record industry, but, <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> yeah, right and has been heavily involved with one of my all-time favourite bands over over the last decade or so, the Monkees, uh, which we'll talk about in a bit. Yeah, right. And and if you if you were seeing the video of this, you would see uh, an array of beautiful records sat behind John in his office, uh, because John was one of the one of the main people that made. Uh, the Monkeys' last two records happened: the the award-winning and much loved "Good Times," and then the uh, the Monkeys' Christmas album. Also, um, I love it. that's how it always is: the award-winning and highly lauded "Good Times" <laughs> and Christmas. <party. laughs> so, so it's, but before we talk about any of that good stuff, John, how did you've got a fascinating career history? That kind of begins because uh, you're from Ohio originally, right? If I recall, yeah, uh, a little town west of Cleveland, or sorry, uh, yeah, west of Cleveland called Elyria, Ohio. Yeah, mm-hmm. and but you, you start out in the military, right, mate? Crazy. Elyria was a really great place to grow up as a kid. It was not a great place to stay as an adult. So <laughs> I wanted to get out any way I could, and three friends of mine were joining the army the U.S. Army. And I kind of watched from a distance. And one day I said, you know what, I'm going to go with you guys to the recruiter and see what's up. And I'm going through the, they had a big book of jobs. It was almost like a catalog, you know, flip through and pick your dream job. And I'm looking through and one of them is broadcast journalist. 
And I said to the guy, is this like, you know, the movie Good Morning Vietnam, like literally being a journalist? He said, oh, it's even more uh, than that. You, you're in the field shooting stories. You're going back. You're learning how to edit. You're, you're anchoring newscasts on TV and radio. You're also the DJ for a four-hour shift at the radio station. I'm like, whoa, uh, okay, I want to do this. And the guy's like, no, 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 no. Uh, you should go into psychological operations. That's kind of the same. <laughs> I was like, no, I really want to want to do this. And he said, well, you ha- it's really tough. You have to audition. I, we've never had anybody get accepted, but we'll give it a shot. So he had to order an audition script from the Defense Information School. It came, he called me. He had to sit in the room with me with a tape recorder and a microphone and watch me read the script. I couldn't take it with me. You know, it was, it was like a cold read. And they sent it off. And, and three weeks later, he called me. He said, I am shocked. You got in. I'm like, wow. Okay. So I, now I guess I have to do this. So I joined the army and probably the best thing I ever did. Yeah, I can't believe, I look back now, I'm 53. I cannot believe I did it. What the hell was I thinking? But I did it. And I got to see the world. I spent most of my time in South Korea. And I was also at Fort Ord when it was open in Monterey, California. And I did everything that they said on the tin. I did TV. I did radio. I learned how to edit. I can direct a TV show. If you put me in front of a control room, I can do all that. Not so well now, probably. I forgot a lot, but that's a long-winded way of saying that's how it got me into media. Got out, got my communications degree, started working in radio, went into advertising. It became a creative uh, copywriter and did that for a few years, moved out to California, got recruited by a company here. They moved me to California, which is probably the second best day of my life. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm here. <laughs> and just weird, uh, weird set of fate that I just kept getting recruited by different companies until one day I was at Guess, the clothing manufacturer doing their e-commerce. I like to joke I was Ugly Betty, if you are familiar with that show. <laughs> deep, yeah. yeah, I was surrounded by beautiful people and I was like the bald white guy, like, well, let's do this. And I saw a job opening on Yahoo Hot Jobs. If anybody remembers that, I'll take you back. And it was at Rhino and I saw it and I, I love telling this story and cut me off if I'm going too long here. I want to hear it, mate. I want to hear it. This is the best story. Uh, I saw the job. I didn't apply. I picked up the phone and I got the switchboard and I said, I Googled who was running the department at that time. And I said, I'm calling for, for, you know, Joe Smith. And the receptionist said, well, who is this? And I said, this is John Hughes from Guess. And they put me right through. (laughs) You know, didn't ask why. They just heard guess and they were like, oh, crap. And I got the guy on the phone and I gave him just the story I gave you pretty much ran down my resume. And I said, give me 10 minutes with you and you can stop your job search. I mean, I was cocky. I (laughs) really cocky because I kind of knew I had the technical stuff they were looking for in terms of e-commerce and I had the music knowledge and those two things don't necessarily go together a lot. And they brought me in for an hour interview that turned into eight hours 
with no lunch, no bathroom break, no offer of water. I was like, is this a test? <laughs> but I think what sealed the deal was during one of the, because they had me interviewing with several different departments. And during one of the departments, I was asked, you know, who's your favorite rhino artist under the Warner catalog? And I said, well, you know, probably not my favorite, but one of the ones I really like that I don't think gets enough respect is Joe Bryath. Yeah. <laughs> I, I threw out Joe Bryath, and that's when I think I got hired. Brilliant, mate. That's fantastic. Now, just to flip back to roll back on something you touched upon there, you, in the middle of in the middle of that anecdote, you you referred to yourself as bald white guy, which is, of course is not doing you any justice because if you know John Hughes, what you know about him is he's an extremely fit, muscular, very well built human being. Now, my question is, did that did that did that come from your army days? Is that something that you got into? That is the assumption, right? Yeah. I did not do crap in the army. I was 19 years old, 125 pounds, soaking wet, five foot eight. I got up in the morning and did the physical training, the bare minimum. I skated by for four years. I didn't do anything. I didn't really start working out until I was like 25 and I was out of the army. And to be real frank, the reason why I started working out is because I was gay and I wanted what I, I wanted to attract what I liked. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, makes complete sense. Make, makes complete thousand sense. percent vanity. That's yeah. the only reason. And you were a thousand percent successful as well, right, mate? Yeah, I got married. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. To, uh, and, your, and your husband's an extremely handsome dude, you know, so, you know. Well, you, yeah, I, I like to think so. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, he is. <laughs> it's, it's the, so, so, mate, so what, when was it? What year are we talking about when you came on board at Ryan? 2009. Uh, yeah. September 2009. I can, September 29th, 2009. I, I just love that day because yeah, I'm so happy here. Yeah. Yeah, no, and and I want to I want to talk very specifically about about the monkeys in a sec. But outside outside of your relationship with the monkeys and all the things that you've done with them, who are the artists that you you've enjoyed working with the most that you feel proudest of your association with in the time uh, you've been there? Definitely Grateful Dead, just amazing. Uh, a, a band that I knew about, you know, being a little punk rocker, new wave synth pop guy, I was like, oh, Grateful Dead, that's kind of, that's the enemy. Not at all. Things really changed for me when I went to that 50th anniversary July 4th show in Chicago with a bunch of people from work. And that's, you know, when you see them live, that's when you get it. It's kind of sad that, you know, the whole crew, Jerry and everybody are not with us anymore. Yeah. But uh, something clicked. It was not chemically enhanced. Uh, <laughs> it just clicked for me. And the cars, of course, I had the real distinct pleasure of working very closely with Rick Okasik on doing the reissues that we did. I like to think we helped get them into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame finally, because that happened right after we did those reissues. I'm not taking credit for it, but I like to hope that was amazing. Zeppelin, you know, I haven't had a lot of face-to-face -face interaction with the band being as mysterious as they are. I, yeah. I love that. I think they should always keep that mis uh, mysteriousness about them. But, you know, you get a chance to work with one of the biggest bands in rock history. Wow. I, I, I still wake up and pinch myself. I mean that it, it must it must be truly amazing to be honest. I mean, you know, to to work with Zeppelin, I guess Zeppelin's like working with Sinatra, isn't it? You know, it, it's it's when you get there are icons and there are icons and another level. Yeah, 
And I, that level of mystery that you've touched upon, I think that's an incredible, incredibly important part of their appeal. You don't want those guys to be accessible and just seeing them everywhere, chatting and whatnot. You know, I, I think there's levels of accessibility. I love Robert Plant's podcast. I think that's great. I, Jimmy has come out and done other things and done like, you know, Q&As. That's fine. I, I like the fact that they just, they, they, they keep us, the label, honest. You know, it's like, no, you're not going to flog this and do 5,000 greatest hits compilations. And it keeps that that band's mystique alive. And it's excellent. I, I, I wish I worked with them more. I don't work with them that much like I used to because of my new position. But it's just I, I love having any association with them whatsoever. I, I can I can totally understand that. And, and how did your your long and close and fruitful association with the monkeys come up? I was a fan before I started at Rhino. I I call myself a monkeys 1.5 generation fan. You have the 1.0s, which saw it when it was aired in the 60s. Then you have the 1.5. Yeah, that's, that's like myself, I have to say. You know, you know you I'm old enough to be on the an original 60s view. <laughs> wow. Then I was a 1.5, which is, it was in syndication here in the 70s, yeah. early mid-70s. And that's when I became a fan. The first record I was given by my Aunt Judy, shout out to Aunt Judy, was the Monkees' first album. She gave me her well-worn copy from the 60s. And I loved it. You know, I always skipped, I'm going to buy me a dog. I'll admit. <laughs> yeah. Even as a kid, I couldn't get through that song. I can uh, understand that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I but the rest, yeah, but the rest of it's great. And so when I got to Rhino, Andrew Sandoval was, was at Rhino still when I first started. And, you know, I made a beeline for his office and just yeah. kind of told him how much I loved what he did for the band and, and how great it was. And then when Andrew left, no one was kind of there to, to pick it up. And so I just started beating the drum and doing things. And it was it was uh, a long road to get everybody back in the fold because, you know, Davey was Davey. Nez had really kind of disassociated himself at that point. Yeah. I think the turning point for me and the Monkees was when we did the Head Super Deluxe Edition. Yeah. I just, I, I don't know if you remember Google Plus, G Plus. Right on. Yeah, yeah. Nez had an account on G plus. So I just sent him a random DM one day and I said, I have this, we did this. I'd love to send you a copy. And he replied. It was like this long letter, like no one talks to me. I'm so glad you reached out. Uh, I'd love a copy. And I got him on the phone and did an interview with him for, you know, the, an early version of the Rhino podcast back then. And yeah. you know that door opened and then just started some communication with Peter and then Mickey, who is, the best guy. I love that man. And I, I, you know, not to be show busy, but we're friends now. It's yeah. not even work. We're actually friends and, and like dinner and drinks and stuff. And I, I'm pinching the five-year-old John constantly like, you know, stop being a fanboy. just yeah. treat him like a human, treat him like a human, do it. <laughs> so um, it's, and then the 50th anniversary came up and I, and I walked into our president, Mark Pincus's office. And I said, Mark, it's the monkey's 50th anniversary. We need to do a new monkey's record. And he said, okay, when are we starting? Like, Whoa. I, okay. I didn't expect that reaction, but, and then I, I you know, had this wild idea. I love fountains of Wayne, one of my favorite bands of all time. Quite and, rightly so. Quite rightly so. Yeah. 
And I heard this song, you know, that they did called It Must Be Summer. And I always thought that's a monkey song that it's a monkey song. I should have Adam Schlesinger produce a record for the monkeys. And so I just got a contact with him from one of my uh, great co-workers, Suzanne, who knew him from their days at Atlantic. And I called him and had him in for a meeting. He's like, I'm in. When do we meet the band? And it was amazing. And I just want to take a second to remember Adam because we actually became best friends after that. And he passed away last April 1st, really early. early Tragically passed away due to COVID, right, John? It was really, we didn't know what was going on. This is when he got sick in March, at the end of February, even he was texting me saying, Hey, I have this cough that won't go away. I might have to go see someone. And then just, it went downhill so fast and nobody knew what was happening. And yeah, I kind of wish he was here today. If he had just held out another month, you know, he he may have gotten one of those experimental treatments, but it was just really, it's a a heartbreaking tragedy. And, and, you know, such a talented guy. I mean, he was a very close friend of yours. I, I'm a huge admirer of his for, for for everything that he did. Fantasies of Wayne for the work you guys did together for that thing you do, of course, which is just an amazingly indelible piece of music, you know. And it's just to have him taken away like that is is uh, must have been very tough for all of you. He would have been blown away by the reaction. He he. Never doubted himself. He never doubted his talent. He was very firm about his value, which was awesome. And I learned from him about that. But he also was kind of self-deprecating, like, hey, I'm a I'm a I'm a 2000s one-hit wonder, you know. But he wasn't. He was he just was so talented. And I it was if, if anything made that horrible experience better, it was seeing the the flood of reactions to his passing. It was really gratifying. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, yes, I guess that that is that's the that's the upside if if there is one. So many wonderful people go yeah. through the world, and uh, the passing is relatively unmarked, other than by their close friends. But but I mean, he he generally left a legacy in a way that it must be a great blessing to one's family and one's friends to be to to be around that when it happens, you know. And his life definitely had purpose and meaning, right? He changed my life entirely. And the the great thing about that is I am one of maybe a hundred people that can say that. It's not just me. He touched so many people and changed so many people. And we miss him. Yeah. Well, well said, brother. Well, well said indeed. When it comes to the album that you guys work together on, could you talk a bit about you just recruited an amazing lineup? Of, of writing talent on this album. Uh, and I think one of the reasons that, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a big Monkeys fan, as you know, but I would say that both, both of them fandom and outside of it, it's kind of wide, widely considered to be one of the Monkeys' best albums, you know, which is quite an amazing achievement, really, you know, given the fact that it, you put it together so long after the heyday and, you know, so long after, because un, uh, what always surprised me about people who are only casual Monkeys fans is how unaware many people are of how big 
the, the wealth of recorded material actually is and yeah. you know what's actually out there and and, and how how much value there is to the, to the monkeys albums you know i mean i mean the stuff i'm interested in really is stuff from headquarters onwards you know and and like, like you know like a lot of fans but you're I, hardcore you're a hardcore yeah, i'm i am i am hardcore <laughs> but i i also get a lot of pleasure out of playing say all the nez country tracks for my yeah. Friends who are musos who don't even know that stuff exists, and they're like, "Oh, they're like, wow, what is this? This is amazing!" Said, "It's the monkeys, mate. You know, it's it's you know, and it might be Mike Nesmith in a recording studio waiting out his contract, but it's it's the monkeys nonetheless, right? But right. when it so to flip to what what I wanted to ask you about, which is how you put it all together with those incredible those incredible songwriters. How, what was the process there, John? I, I w- wish I could say there was a big master plan and I sat back and I, I was, you know, Machiavellian and I was very specific about who I reached out to. Not at all. The sad truth is I had a few people in mind. Adam had a few people in mind and we just kind of, we started, I think we underestimated ourselves at the beginning. We started small. We were asking really well-loved but but still indie bands like Rogue Wave, for example, yeah. to contribute songs. And they did, and they were great. Zach from Rogue Wave contributed Terrifying, which is a yeah. brilliant song, which should have been on the record. I got overruled on that one, but it ended up as a B-side. At least it's out there in the world. But that song should have been on the record. But we went I love that there. tune, too. It's so good. And then we went from there to, you know, a wider net and we just kind of tested it and adam knew weezer's manager and rivers and, and asked rivers momo and he's like sure sent us seven songs you know the guy is <laughs> just really? a writing machine yeah and that really kind of emboldened us okay we're gonna we're gonna sh- start aiming higher and i was like i know you know a- andy partridge through my friend jason day here at rhino let's ask andy partridge and i believe andrew sandoval knew him as well and, and made the ask Andy Partridge lost his mind. He he's <laughs> such a huge monkeys fan. He drew a picture of Nikki for a monkeys fanzine when he was a kid, and he sent me the scan of it. He contributed at least eight songs, I think, at one count. We had to narrow it down to one, uh, and then again, now we've got a, a bunch of names behind us. We can start dropping them to other people. So Adam knew Noel Gallagher for some random reason. Shot him a note saying, "Hey, these guys have contributed. Do you have anything?" And Noel, I think I saw the email. He was super tickled by the aspect of the monkeys asking him for a song. It was yeah. almost like a joke, but he loved it and. He's like, well, you know, I happen to have this sort of three quarters finished tune I was working on with my friend Paul Weller. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> uh, and he sent that, and that was Birth of an Accidental Hipster, which is our big psychedelic head moment on yeah. the record. It was perfect. And, and we just kept going. Uh, the uh, Nez had a great song called I Know What I Know that yeah, was very right. different, very different in demo form. Adam really stripped it down and did this arrangement that was very striking. I really, Peter had a bunch of stuff, but the one that we gravitated to was little girl, which he actually uh, wrote for yeah. Amy Jones. Yeah, so lovely. Oh, when, when did he, when did he write that? When did he write that? 66. Amazing. 
And it was it was written for he thought, oh, yeah. I want to be free is kind of a Davy. I'm gonna yeah. write a, a Davy song. And that's that was that. My big my big regret is I wish Mickey wrote more. Yeah. Uh he doesn't fancy himself as a writer, which I find a shame because he writes stuff that <laughs> I think the fact that he doesn't think he's a writer emboldens him to be so different yeah. no one else is going to write a song like shorty blackwell yeah no absolutely not no i i, I agree I, and i i remember i remember reading peter talk uh, a couple of times talking about you know his uh, his kind of dismay for once for a better word that 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 mickey didn't write more and you know dolan's songs are so unusual you know, and that they've yeah. got, as you say, Shorty Black was a great example. You know, uh, uh, but Mommy and Daddy, for example. It, it, you know, the, who's he's going to write that? Right? Who's going to write a uh, uh, boo wow, chicka chicka wow wow? Yeah. Who's gonna, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Randy Scouse, get. Oh, man. I mean, you know, I, I'm from Merseyside and I love that song. You know, it's amazing. I don't know anybody who doesn't love that song. It's an amazing piece of work. It's dance hall. He's scatting. Yeah. I mean, what is happening here? Yeah. Uh, and so I kind of locked him in a room with Adam at one point. Actually, they they went to, I believe they went up to Mulholland and just kind of sat together and tried to write a song looking o- over the Hollywood Hills. And that's where I was there and I'm told I had a good time came from. So, which was, you know, Mickey's catchphrase that he uses in yeah. every interview. And he knows that. And yeah. so we, we wanted to have fun with that. And yeah. that, that was the result. I think I think as a listener, I think what you guys got exactly right with that album is that it's it's I think it's an hour long sort of exercise in joy. That's the way I would describe it. And but it doesn't feel like say say pull it or like uh, just does, which you know feels essentially like a very pale echo of the monkeys. It, you've got right to the heart of what the band is, and I think you all truly understand it. It's in the title. Good yeah. time. That was the mission statement. And it was, we don't want it to sound like the 60s. We don't want it to sound like the 80s. We don't want it to sound like 2016. We want it to be timeless. So yeah. timeless was the key word and good times was the mission statement. And, you know, people are like, I wish there were more ballads. And that was not the goal. Sorry. And we, Andrew, we stumbled into it. I mean, yeah. we had four weeks to do the album we had we had committed ourselves i don't know if you remember the timeline the album was on amazon and was the number one album on amazon before we had recorded a single note we did this so ass backwards we announced it we were too excited we got pre-orders in and then we got this big in the u.s it's a big deal the cbs sunday morning uh piece and the piece was Memorial Day weekend. So we had to have the album out May 27th, come hell or high water to make that interview. And I think there were good, mostly good things about that deadline pressure and a couple of bad things. A couple of bad things is you've got someone like Michael Nesmith who is a caring perfectionist and wants things done. The, the famous quote from him that I'll never forget is John deadlines aren't physics. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> At first I was like, what? Huh? And now I, now I get what he's saying. It was like, why are we rushing when this is art? And, I, and yeah. he had, he was right, but you know, commerce sometimes overtakes us. Of course. And that, 
that kind of made me Johnny Kirshner at one point. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I don't relish that, but yeah. I like my job. Yeah. <laughs> so, did did you I, get a fist through the wall moment? That's the thing. No, like, no, not yeah. at all. Nothing like that. And I don't think he would ever do that. I, 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 I care a lot for him and I like to think we're friends too. And it was, I get what he was saying. I understand that his, my name's got on it, but it's not, in bold type with my picture on the cover, his name's on it and yeah. it's going to live with him forever. So if he's not happy with something, he's not going to be happy with it, period. Yeah. Um, the, the good part of that deadline pressure is it forced us to move. We couldn't dilly dally. We couldn't navel gaze. It had to be done. Are there mixes I think could be better? Sure. But I will tell you as the guy who was literally sitting in an office chair like this over Adam Schlesinger's shoulder in his New York City lofts, watching him mix it because into the night at 2.30 in the morning, because we had to make a mastering deadline in three days, it, it had to be done. Yeah, no, and I, I, it, it fascinates me that so often great art comes out of these deadline pressured moments, whether that's movies, whether it's records. I mean, sometimes the exact opposite is true, of course, but you definitely collectively, you and Adam and the band had this lightning in a bottle moment where you just put something extraordinary together. And and to see the reviews you got, not just from lifelong fans like myself, because sure, we're an important audience, but, you know, to to see, you know, as you know, I used to be a music journalist, to Mm -hmm. see professional, often monkeys-resistant music journalists really embracing the album. That must have felt amazing. We got a feature review in Rolling Stone. Right. You know, famously just completely trashed the whole concept for decades. We got Mojo. We got Uncut. We got all these really stellar reviews. And it it was a shock. It was a shock, almost as shocking as debuting at number 14 on the Billboard Top 200. I was I was praying for top 50. I'm like, yeah, top 50. They'll have their first top 50 album in, in you know, whatever it was, 30 years or whatever. No, top 20. It's so close to top 10. If, if they had not recently changed the charts to reflect streaming, we would have been probably number five or six. Yeah. Yeah, right. Right on such such a, such a, a beautifully uh, justified result. And as you might recall, John, I used to be the publisher of Uncut Magazine. And yes. uh, the, the, <laughs> the, the, the the thing about Uncut is not necessarily one of the great secrets, but something people might not know unless they were talking to somebody who worked on the magazine for a long time, like myself, is. Uncut is full of monkeys fans. Uh, oh, yeah. Everyone's a monkeys fan on Uncut. So, so I can imagine. I was I was no longer on the magazine when they when they out, and I was working with you on some other things. In fact, but but when when they must have, I can just imagine how that went down in the offices because I can imagine when it went down when I first when you started. I, I think I heard the first tracks from it. To be honest, mate, in your yeah. office, and, and and that kind of arcs into what I think is. I think the album's triumphant on many levels. And I think you and Adam and the guys, you know, quite rightly have, have, have received all, all the all the plaudits for that. And it's just such an amazing achievement. But I think as great as the album is, and as great a moment in time as as as, as the album was, I, I think the other thing that you guys really achieved is 
producing one of the top five monkey songs of all time in 2016, which is me and Magdalena, which I just think was an incredibly spectral moment of oral beauty. And I first heard it in your office and I was, I was just blown away and I'm still blown away by, by it now. That was interesting. A friend of mine at work, Brian Hay, knew Ben Gibbard's manager. And I thought, ooh, that could be interesting. So we shot him an email and Ben Gibbard, again, it, the Monkees fans, he lifted up, our, it was like lifting up a rock and watching the ball come out, scurry out. He was a huge Monkees fan and he sent us the demo. And I don't know if you've ever heard the demo. He released it himself a couple of years ago, but it's very synthesizer-y. Yeah. It's got a beat. It's, it's mid-tempo. It's great. And I heard this and I was like, this could be interesting. But And I sat with Adam. And I played it for him and Adam's like, I don't get it. And I said, make it a country Western song for Nez. And he's like, oh. And so I was like, Nez needs a country showcase. And the funny thing is Nez's musical tastes now, he, I don't want to assume, but I'm going to anyway. He probably would have preferred the synthesized approach. <laughs> and that, that's what I that's what I want to do, John. Yeah. I want to do stuff like that. I know my NAS is really bad. But we did this countrified thing, and you know, they've mentioned it in interviews. There was a battle between Mickey and Nez for that song. Like, I want to sing it. I want to sing, you know, it was to me, it wasn't to each other. So I thought, why don't you both sing it? And so we made it uh, a duet with a more of a mic showcase. He has a solo part. But then Adam said, I don't know, this country version, I see it as a bird song. So there's me and Magdalena version two. We went ahead and cut that. And then Adam and I went into the, the ring, had 10 rounds. One of us stood victorious. I will let you decide who that was based on which version ended up on the album. Well, which I think, honestly, was the only choice. Uh, I mean, I, I like the version too. And I like the demo as well, which I've also heard. But I think the version on the album is head and shoulders, the version that should be out there. And it, it, it gives it such a great account of that song. If we had put the Birds version on the album, it would have just blended in because there are a lot of mid-tempo songs on that record, a lot of guitar jangly songs on that record. We needed some texture. We needed to slow things down a bit. We needed to pause right before we went into that psychobilly freakout that is the birth of uh, Accidental Hipster. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah I, I agree. I, I, I agree I, with I, my I, choice. <laughs> I, I, I also agree with your choice, John Hughes. And, and your choice, of course, has traveled the world because that, that song went on a... On a, on a on a great journey that outdistanced the original album, it seems to me, from my point of view. So what many if I people. I told you it was now the third most streamed monkey song right behind I'm a Believer and Daydream Believer. Mate, do you know what? I, I, I'm very gratified to hear that and I, I totally believe it. Without knowing that, it, it, A, I like it because it's serving to underline my point. And B, that doesn't surprise me at all, John. I mean, I think it's truly a special piece of music, which is how you have to feel as well. And that alone, you know, it seems to me that one of the, the beauty of talking about your career at Rhino is it's made up of these moments. If you took them one by one, you'd be like, wow, man, even if I just had that, that would be great. But you, you, your kind of monkey's arc is like an embarrassment of wonderful riches, isn't it? You know, you have the fact that we're having this conversation about good times, but we're also having this conversation about Mayor Magdalena. That's got to feel pretty special, mate. It's five years old at this point. Can you believe that? That's incredible. I, I, uh, I find that amazing. 
and it still sells. I mean, cause you know, I, I, I got an ego. I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll claim it. I look at the sales figures every few weeks. I'm like, it's still moving. Okay. And you know, I, I'm, I kind of, in some ways feel like the high school football quarterback, you know, 10 years at the reunion, wistfully looking back saying that was the high point of my life. <laughs> now it's all over, but no, I, it, it, that, you said lightning in a bottle, which is how Mickey always describes the monkeys casting. Yeah. That album was the same thing and it's never going to be replicated. I mean, we've lost Peter, we've lost Adam. It's just, you know, I, I trying to replicate it in some aspect with Christmas party was an attempt. I, I'm not embarrassed by it. I'm not as proud of it as I am good times the difference, and I'll be real honest with you and your, your listeners, the difference between good times and Christmas party was a lot of meddling. Good yeah. times, we were left alone. And it was like, we trust you, go do this, make it happen. Christmas party, it was, okay, you did this last time. What are we going to do this time? And how are we going to do it? All right, I need to hear this. No, we have to have a song that's relevant for the UK, which is how Wizard, I wish it was Christmas every day, ended up yeah. on a record. You know, and I get it. We it's a commercial enterprise and we've got things to do, but boy, the difference between the two is is somewhat striking. But I'm gonna defend Christmas Party a little bit, thanks to the aforementioned Michael Nesmith, who was given the freedom, which is the key word again here, to go off and do two tracks completely on his own with his sons. And Snowfall is yeah. one of the best tracks on that record. And he's like, I want to cover a snowfall. And I'm like, and I made him laugh because I said, the Manhattan transfer song? <laughs> he's like, you know, John, this song's a little older than that. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> that was my only point of reference was the Manhattan transfer version. But, you know, again, because he had the freedom to go do what he wanted, it came out better. Yeah. And, and it's, a, it's a very, very beautiful rendition. And mm -hmm. so for me personally, I think I actually really love House of Broken Gingerbread. I love that song. Again, Adam wrote it. That was the first track we worked on with Mickey and we were left alone. People, there were people who hated that song. Why? Well, I don't get it. Why is uh, it's not a Christmas song? Where are the sleigh bells? You know, and I and I was at that point able to fend them off a bit, and we got that as a result. I'm not saying I have all the answers, and no one else can give good input. It was just like it was. I'm gonna be honest; it was overwhelming at points where it was like I was getting hit by all sides. And well played, Chief, for getting through it and getting to the other side of it. Mm -hmm. And at least it, you know, from a from a kind of marketing releasing perspective, the beauty of a Christmas album, right, is that they can be a hardy perennial. So you know, it's yeah, not all just into one season yeah yeah it's done well and you know like you said house of broken gingerbread i listened to that song in august it's just a great yeah. song you know and and again it's it's bittersweet because you think wow adam just had these things in him and again another great adam story just how he knows everyone in the universe he's like you know john michael shabad the guy who wrote well what's the comic book related the uh, amazing adventures of cavalier and clay you. yeah yeah. And uh, the escapist. Yes. And he's like, he's a monkeys fan. He's also a Mount Fountain's Wayne fan. I'm going to just see if he wants to write lyrics to the song. So Adam shoots off a random email to Shaban and we end up with lyrics 
from Michael Chabon, you know, this award-winning writer on our little Christmas flight of fancy. So it was really yeah. cool. I, I, and I guess I, my, my two sort of closing questions class, uh, uh, slash topics for discussion really are, are that um, one's comet-related and one's fabric of the monkeys related so i'll ask that one first it, it would again as a fan my feeling is that is that you do have kind of a beautiful epitaph of peter on this album as well which yeah. took on some kind of special resonance i think once peter passed listening to that version of angels we have heard on high it's actually quite beautiful you know which didn't strike me that way when i first heard it but you know once once events took the took the the, the shape they did that's how i feel about it now that is the, the the reaction arc of everyone yeah. when they hear it. They're like, what is this? What? I don't understand this share vocal. Yeah. And when they find out how it was recorded and under the circumstances, they're like, whoa, you know, it's actually kind of ethereal. And that's that's what we were going for. Peter was very, very ill at the time to the point where we were like, you know, we might have to do this without him. And we did not want to. We, we left it up to him. Here's some stuff. If you feel it, you, great. If you're not up for it, we understand. He dragged himself to the recording studio one day between you know treatments and did that vocal, and he was exhausted. It it just took a lot out of him, and you know it wasn't soon after that when the album came out. You know I think it was two months after that we lost him. So I'm so glad he had the intestinal fortitude to do that, and it's it's something that. You know, at the time, people were confused by it. It was a it was a very, very well kept secret about his illness and how serious yeah. it was. But then, I think afterwards, you listen to it and you're like, "Wow, uh, it's really magic." Yeah, no, I I think that's right. And and then the 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 other thing that you touched upon with Michael Chabon's involvement is the the comic book connections that Christmas Party has because it's <laughs> it's not just Chabon; it's it's the cover, right? It started with good times. Remember the video for She Makes Me Laugh. Yeah. I took the Dell, my my personal Dell comic book collection yeah. of monkeys comics. And I they're they're you know, they're brags, you know. I didn't take my mint copies, please. Those are slapped. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I took them and I took them to our scanner and I scanned a bunch of them in with a really talented creative director that we have here named Jocelyn Lane. And we made this lyric video for I think it was $500 and now it's got over a million views. And and so I've always had that comic book connection in what I do. I, I, talent borrows genius steals. So (laughs) I'm constantly stealing ideas from my collecting world to bring into the music job. Right now I'm working on NFTs, you know, the NFTs I'm using my knowledge of collecting and comics and variants and okay, you got to have this different cover. I do variant covers on all my releases. I don't know if you noticed that. Yeah, I do. Um, Yeah. So the Christmas party comes around and I, I, I just keep seeing his art with monkeys references. I'm like, I gotta get two people to do this album cover, either Alex Ross or Michael Allred and Alex Ross, you know, he did some lithographs and stuff, which were beautiful. Didn't quite get the excitement from him. Michael Allred just lost his friggin' mind and sent me, 
I hadn't even worked out a contract with or payment or anything with him. And he sent me a fully rendered pencil drawing. I I would say it's a rough. It was nowhere near rough of the album concept. And I was like, this don't change a thing. I mean, all the Easter eggs were in there already. He is his monkey's knowledge is unsurpassed, except maybe Andrew Sandoval. Uh, And I was like, wow, Mike, good job. So we used that art also for the lyric video. I cannot remember the name of the song, but it's the Santa song, the the Rivers Cuomo song about Santa. What would Santa do? That's it. Yeah. And so it was, it was really cool. And the, the comic book thing is really important to me because I always took inspiration from my favorite superheroes, you know, Captain America, my all time favorite. When I joined the army, I, this is going to sound so maudlin and dumb. I thought I was doing what Steve Rogers would do. That was, I literally thought about Captain America when I was raising my hand, taking the oath, enlisting that I felt like it was 1941 and I was the scrawny kid volunteering because of Pearl Harbor, you know, it was a peace sign, but still the thought was there. So yeah, it's really influenced pretty much a lot of my life. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 that is a, that is a connection that you and I have that we've, we've touched upon before, given the fact that I'm I'm probably about 10 years older than you and I'm an Englishman from Merseyside. My favorite comic book character beyond the shadow of a doubt is also Captain America. Really? And, yeah, oh yeah, but by but and and it's got a lot to do with the fact that this is a story I've told a lot, so I'll do the super brief version. But my grandfather, Pop Smythe, fought with an American unit in World War II. Hmm. And he came back from World War II with a massive love of America, Americans and American popular culture. And it's mainly because he was he was with an American regiment and he was living off American rations, which were much better than the British <laughs> rations. He would it with his rations, which would be like chuck steak and all that kind of stuff, you know, whereas essentially the British rations at that point, having had the supply lines cut by the Nazis for so long, were essentially cardboard. Yeah. He was eating really nice food, but he's also getting two cigarettes a day, a Hershey bar and a comic book. So he came back from World War II with a bunch of Captain American comics, with a, with a bunch of Human Torch comics. So when I was a kid in the 60s, I had chronic asthma for a few years and I was in hospital. This is a classic comic book fan story, right? Pops brought his comics into a hospital. And the first comic book he ever bought me was Batman 184. And that's when I was three years old. <clears throat> you know, such is born the obsession of a lifetime, mate. But yeah. because of the transformation the particularly acute transformation of Scrawny to Captain America. And when I first really got into reading Captain America, it was in the first, like, Tales to Astonish, full bloom era of the Lee and Kirby, you know, yeah. readings of that character. Good you know. place to come in. Yeah, right on. And those, <laughs> those very early World War II exploits, now, where they yeah. were after reintroduced them, they went back in time and had a bunch of Bucky Tales and whatnot. Yeah, that really set a massive... I've, I've loved Captain America ever since. And I love the whole World War II connection because... It's a through line with my grandfather. But it's what? funny you say that, that the, the Kirby uh, brought you in because Kirby brought me in. Uh, I started really, I, the first comic I ever found was uh, a tattered copy of Captain America 154 on the playground. And he's yeah. fighting himself. And why are there two of them? And I don't yeah. get it. It's like the conclusion of like this long Steve Engelhardt story. Yeah. But a five-year-old me is like, 
I can follow along. Yeah. But I really got into it when Kirby came back. in ah, uh, during the, the Mad Bomb era. Yeah. One, uh, I'm not wearing it today. I thought I was wearing my Mad Bomb shirt. My favorite yeah. cover of all time. Yeah, uh, I was actually reading it before then. I remember 192 was like a fill-in yeah. issue by Frank Robbins. And at the end, I don't know if you know the end of that issue, there's a big third panel at the bottom saying, next issue, King Kirby is back. And I'm like, what's a King Kirby? And why am I supposed to be excited? And boy, did I find out. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it, I, I, I really love that run. And it was at the time, I mean, I read that I bought those issues in real time. And, and because I'd, I'd really picked up my, it's funny, my, my, my Captain America buying habits kind of went in waves. And obviously, I was a fan of the the stuff where I really built up my month to month reading habits was with the Engelhart Salbusema stuff, right? Yeah. And uh, but I absolutely loved the balls out craziness of that of that Kirby arc, like so much of what he was doing around that time. It you just were the felt, minority. Yeah, I know, and I was because <laughs> in the letter columns, which you could tell, and you now look at them are partially set up by the bullpen and stand oh. whoever. You know, it's all design. It's all full of full of fucking complaints, right? Do you know what I mean? But I thought it, I thought it was glorious in its insanity. You know, that that's well, what I loved about it. As a kid, I think I was uh, probably seven or eight at that point. The the consensus on the playground was, along with the letter column uh, yeah, people, of it was, yeah. uh, he's drawing, we call him Square Boy because he draws square fingertips and what yeah. are the squiggly lines on his knees? People didn't get it. I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. But something drew me to it. It was like almost primal, you know? And then I, as much as I complained about his art, I bought Eternals. I bought yeah. Black Panther. I bought everything he did at Marvel. That Marvel 70s era, that Marvel Kirby 70s era that's so looked down upon sometimes, yeah. that is my primo stuff, man. Machine Man, give uh, me yeah. that I'm in. Yeah, man, it, it is it is a great era. And talking about Kirby and talking about that era, it makes me wonder if, given your military background, did you did you ever? So, were you into the the immediate era prior to that, the the end of Kirby's DC era? Were you a fan of that stuff? No, um, I didn't get New Gods. I tried to read it over and over and over, and I don't understand the dialogue. And it's so it's you know the the typical Kirby criticism is stilted. I wouldn't say it's stilted. I would say they talk like gods. Yeah, and we are we are not used to hearing gods speak. That's the adult me. Yeah, the kid me is like I don't I don't know what's a Steppenwolf. Yeah. Um, and Commandy was a kid's book, and I'm using yeah. air quotes here. And I'm, you know, I may be a kid, but I'm not a kid. I'm not reading that. Demon was scary. I don't yeah. get this at all. So uh, the only DC book that Kirby did that for some strange reason I was drawn to as a kid was the Justice Inc. The Avenger. Oh yeah, the- right. Yeah. Actually, mate, that is a that is a, such a great book. That is such a great book, and of course, most of the issues Kirby. It's not even on the covers. It's Joe Kubert covers, right? But and he's I, not writing it. Yeah, I, I I love that too. In fact, it's a very very it's a very able adaptation of mm-hmm. the Avenger series. It's really well done. You know, I mean, it's really telescoped down and done well. You look back at that late era where he was just marking time at DC, where you know, yeah, 
he just kind of gave up on doing his own stuff and he's doing stuff like justice inc he did an issue of richard dragon kung fu and you're like wow he's gotta he's gotta be miserable yeah just being a, a robot a pencil robot a gun for hire yeah but it's so good. <laughs> but it, I, I, do you know what? I, I couldn't agree more. And the reason I was asking, I was fit, I was just touching upon your military background is a series that I love is his 12 issues on our fighting forces when he takes oh over my God. the losers. That's one of the greatest Kirby books of all time. I didn't know about it when I was a kid. No clue. I didn't. I don't read war books, you know, whatever. It's pass them on the rack. As an adult, uh, young adult, in my 20s, I discovered he did Our Fighting Forces. I'm like, yeah. I got to get a, my favorite artist of all time, and I don't have this. I got to get a run of Our Fighting Forces. And it's a tough run to get in grade. It's very, uh, very difficult to get, yeah. Yeah, but I got it. And you've got... Just these personal stories that obviously some stuff is drawn by experience from his experience and some stuff is just Kirby wackiness, yeah. like the comic book Rocket story, Panama Fatty. You know, I love it. I, I just wish it would have been more Mike Royer, less Dean Bruce Berry. Yeah, I, 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 mate, I'm so with you. I'm so with you. I, I think D. Bruce Berry is an okay Kirby. He's certainly not the worst Kirby in Kirby. But, I mean, Mike Royer's the man in terms of just bringing that propulsive beauty of Kirby to the page. You just Power. Feel, like, feel like you're getting at source Kirby. But he wasn't the, afraid of a brush. He wasn't no. afraid of a heavy line. Oh, he loved a heavy line. Yeah. yeah. Bruce Berry is more like, I'm going to trace this the way Jack. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. I, I think you've, you've really touched upon what works about the losers because it's while it is madcap extreme Kirby, it is also very much Jack's experience of, being in the army, you know, and it, the thing is, I read a lot of the war books primarily because my my because Pops, an ex-serviceman, who bought me a lot of my comics, he would buy every single war book that was out there. So I've got very long runs of Sergeant Rock and our fighting forces and GI Combat with the Haunted Tank, all those books. And at the time, I remember it's the the same thing happened with the losers. The standard losers fans who were used to script by Kaniger and beautiful artwork by John Severin, which was amazing, by the way. Who's going to replace John Severin? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean that's it. So to go from, you know, Severin to boom, without any warning, suddenly Kirby's writing and drawing the whole thing. All the that classic war fans. Yeah, they're all up in arms. You know, this is it's terrible, right? But and there was a subplot about I think Captain Storm's missing girlfriend. Yes, uh, yeah. and that's all anybody seemed to focus on. Is <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, no, that's right. Because Kirby just just ignored all the continuity, yeah. and it was essentially on pause until those guys came back. But the yep. the, the interesting thing about Kanaga that for years I didn't realize is for a long time I assumed, oh, you know, this guy was was like in the army. In fact. He's the only guy in the war books who was who never served, you know, nope. and, and, and he just came up with this funny kind of formula for creating the books. You know, Kubert was a soldier, all the other guys were, he wasn't. But so therefore, even though it's Kirby and it's very extreme, <clears throat> there's an absolute level of emotional reality in it, you know, I find. And, 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 and just practical reality. He used to do those little one or two page equipment reviews in the back and that were so historically accurate i mean you don't put historically accurate in jack kirby in the same sentence very often but this was this was one of them 
Yeah, I I agree. I, I agree, mate. And with let's look back to Captain America for a second. Yeah. What were your other favorite creative runs on Captain America? The the no one will stand above Mark Greenwald. People give him you know a lot of crap, but he took over that book. I think with issue three hundred and eight, and wrote it to almost the bitter end before Mark Wade came on. And ignore Cap Wolf, okay. Ignore the the superior stratagem where he gets changed into a woman. Yeah, you know, take the goofiness out of it, <laughs> yeah. or keep it in. What was Kirby? Goofy. This was yeah. goofy stuff. This is the guy who gave us U.S. Agent, John Walker, Flag Smasher, Crossbones, Diamondback. As a Captain America fan, which was Kirby action intrigue. Indiana Jones type cliffhangers and adventures. Mark Runewald delivered that month after month after month after month, you know, and I, he does not get enough respect as probably the preeminent Captain America author behind him, Englehart, you know, that Englehart run is classic. It's you, you, with the exception of Grumal, you can't touch it. <laughs> um, it's not, it's not uh, a mistake that the two greatest stories are, Cap being replaced by Grunewald and Cap quitting by Englehart because you got a look into why Steve Rogers is Captain America. No matter what they do, I love Sam Wilson as Cap. I love, you know, all the different changes. Steve Rogers is Captain America. You, you can't separate the two. Um, the I can give you. I can give you the low points. Oh, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, I have a lot to say about this subject, and it's what you're already saying as is fascinating me for a bunch of reasons. So please continue. I, I, I'm I'm dying to hear it. Post Kirby, Stan Lee, and Gene Collins run. Yawner, uh, uh, man, brute. All right, yeah. you know, name one memorable story yeah. from that run. I, I challenge you. you Maybe know. the only interesting thing about that run is is the creation of of the Falcon. You know that's yeah. that's that that's maybe was oh, I can't remember. Was Lee off it by then? Was it Roy Thomas? No, it was Lee and Cohen. Yeah, it yeah. was. Yeah, yep. the, I'll give him the Falcon. Um, you know, and that that is interesting that you bring that up because people always the the argument about Lee is name one lasting character he created without Jack Kirby or Steve Ditko. You just named one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, or maybe it was Gene Cullen. Who knows? Yeah, <laughs> it was almost certainly Gene Cullen. I, my yeah, right. <laughs> I'm trying to give Stan yeah. some props after trashing him. Yeah, there, there is a point, and this is you've got nerds listening to this podcast, right? Right on. Yeah. Okay. There was a point in Captain America from like issue two thirty two or whenever, right before Burn came on with Roger yeah. Stern, two forty seven. Yeah. Those 240s, the 238 to 246, it was fill-in after fill-in after fill-in. And I was a kid, and it was my favorite book. And even I was like, what is happening to this book? It was a low point for sure. You had that classic Punisher cover on 241, but the story inside, you open it up, and it's Frank Springer. Boo! (laughs) Bait and switch. It's just awful, awful stories with one little gem in there. And if you guys don't have this story, you should probably seek it out and find it. It's cheap. Two-parter. I want to say it was David Anthony Kraft who just left us this week, unfortunately. Uh, A character called Adonis. A uh, very cool story. Check that out if you have it. That, that's Mate, you, you, you have you've done what for me is the almost unthinkable. You've mentioned the 
a story that I haven't actually read. So I, I'm definitely going to seek that out. That's a brilliant If piece I tell you the cover, you, you might remember yeah. the cover. It's got Captain America fighting a guy who's got a big piece of machinery lifted up and he's melting. The guy's like melting. Okay, the cover uh, I do know. I've definitely Frank never read Miller. that book. Yeah. Yeah, really cool Frank Miller cover. But, you know, uh, there was a lot of uh, lost opportunities on Captain America. Steve Gerber, who was probably one of my favorite writers, came yeah. on. And then almost immediately left after screwing up his origin. <laughs> like, that was oh man, that was awful. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that was terrible. I, I couldn't. Yeah, I had an older brother way. that died in nonsense. Fucking nonsense. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I agree. What, <laughs> Steve? I love you, but you need help. Yeah. So I, I can go on and on about Captain America. John, John it's, I tell you what. So uh, this, what I love about everything you've just said is that you happen to have named the one run on Captain America is your absolute favourite that I have always placed in the category of that's my least favourite iteration there of Captain America. Mark Grunwald, and you've made me, I, I mean, I know how much of, of the, the DNA that was used in Falcon Winter Soldier comes from Grunwald, but you've made me want to go back and, and read it now, which is something nobody's ever achieved before. Just so, do 332 through 350. 330, okay, I'll, I'll do it. That's the Captain America U.S. agent arc, and after that, there's there's good stuff. There's there's hidden gems in there. Streets of Poison is a good story. There's a lot of one-offs. It, it, it makes me miss Diamondback. Yeah, I don't Mate. know. You're familiar with her? Yeah. She was she was Cap's girlfriend for almost a decade, and now she's like you know gone pretty much yeah basically uh, inhabiting oblivion I, I honestly to hear your enthusiasm for this is kind of infectious so because for me i, I i'm uh, it's i you don't get a you don't get a bigger fan of captain america than me you'll get as big a fan yourself but mm -hmm. certainly uh, you'll not find anybody who's english who loves captain america as much as i do <laughs> i have discovered over the years but but for me in addition to you know kind of simon and kirby you know link the things that the, the runs that I really love, one of which you've named previously, I love that short seven or eight issue run with Stern and Byrne. I love oh that. God. Um, Who's going to let them leave the book? It's just insane that they... they Over a villain. I just mean, ridiculous. Oh. So It's so needless. I remember being absolutely gutted when the news came out that they were leaving. It's like, what the hell has gone on? I thought we were... Four-year run. I, I thought we were going to get Fantastic Four, but on Captain America. Yep. Uh, and and actually, I did enjoy the, the Stern and Zek books. I thought Zek was great. Uh, yeah. I liked those. And then my I was a big, I was a big fan of... Wade and Garney, the first incarnation. Uh, okay. As much as I love Grunwald and I praise Grunwald, Wade and Garney was a breath of fresh air. So it was after. unbelievable. Yeah. Well, we were coming from that. Oh, you know, Mark went out so badly with that cap armor storyline, fighting chance. Oh, oh yeah. Mark. Well, well I, th I think basically for me, what happened is I think there's, there, as there is, that there's two iterations of Wade Garney. There's yeah. Wade Garney before that dreadful, ridiculous interlude, the heroes reborn in, in interlude or whatever. And, Only and, comic book I've ever ripped up. 
Uh, and that that comic book sucks. And and you really don't think, and hang on, we've just gone from one of the all-time great Captain America runs, unexpected, and now we've got this, what, for a year? And then right. when the, when they brought Wade and Garney back, I was like, yeah, okay, this is, this is alas, an act of great sense. But I think their mojo was gone when they came back the second time. It just was never, never in the same league as their, as their original stories. They were sprinting. They were ahead of everyone. The rain, yeah. they were going to go through that uh, winner's tape and someone yeah. tripped, someone tripped them and, you know, they yeah. had to recover and it was, it was a shame. Uh, I think that second run that you're mentioning, I've keep, I always forget about this guy and it's not fair to him. Dan Jurgens yeah. did a really cool run on vol- yeah. volume two where he wrote and drew it. And it was he brought. I think he brought back Donna Maria from the Kirby time. Yeah. It yeah. was it. It was modernized, but still slam bam action. Yeah, I, I think Jurgens is one of those guys who doesn't really get his due because he's wow. he's an amazing journeyman. Sounds like it. He's being fobbed off with fake praise, but he's supremely reliable. I don't think he's ever anything other than nuts and bolts entertaining. And if you if you go back and you read something like Booster Gold, that's a book that shouldn't work. Yeah. Right? I don't think, but actually. It's it's tremendously entertaining. You know, it's just good comics month after month. Very proficient. And the other thing I absolutely love, and the thing that really pulled me back to Captain America, pretty much after Wade and Garney returned for volume two of their time on the book, I, I was then, despite my love for the character, Cap for me had fallen into the ranks of, okay, Cap's my favourite character, but they just can't get him right. And these books are so weak, I don't want to read them. And I've had that experience with many other superheroes, I'm, I'm sure that you have also. But what pulled me back in, and what pulled me back into Marvel, actually, was the was the Brubaker-Epting run, which the guys at Gosh Comics, this is years before I ever worked for Forbidden Planet, worked with Forbidden Planet and whatnot, the guys at Gosh Comics, actually, uh, Nate at uh, Gosh, I walked in one day, go, look, I'm looking for a new mainstream book to read. I've just finished X and I've just finished Y. I, I want to get, you know, one DC or Marvel book on the roster. That, what do you think is the best one out there? And he was, you know, you have to read what Brubeck is doing on Captain America. It's like 24 in the Marvel Universe, which I thought was, a, which was, a, you know, was that I know that's a description that came from Brubeck himself, but he was dead right. The minute I started picking that up, it was like, holy fuck, this is Captain America. This is the way I want to read it. He killed Jack Monroe, Nomad, and I wasn't mad. That's <laughs> yeah. how good he is. Yeah. He brought yeah. Bucky back to life, the yeah. biggest yeah. taboo ever, and I loved it. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that Brubaker run is probably the last time I really enjoyed Cap. I, I hung on, you know, I think Nick Spencer finally broke me with the whole Hydra thing. I was like, oh, well. He- we're on the same page, mate. I, I the how, that thing, the whole that's a book that should just never have happened. It was totally pointless. I get it was part of a bigger arc, yeah. and there was going to be a resolution. But you should, Cap should never be a Nazi. Never, 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 never. Because even if it is an overarching narrative, you don't want those books out there to yeah. be taken by that lunatic fringe, and it's a, because those panels exist and can be used shorn of context to further exactly. that narrative. I think that's the problem with doing that. Uh, and uh, that's why I think that was it was a very reckless thing to do, uh, particularly yeah. when it's fucking Captain America, who, you know, it, it, it created by you know, two of the most famous, like, Jewish comic creators of all time. What <laughs> To fight Nazis, why the fuck would you do that? Was there an editor involved? I mean, I don't understand. <laughs> uh, 
And it's we've seen Cap break this programming before. We saw it in Tales of Suspense when the Red Skull tried to hypnotize him to shoot a Nazi or to shoot an American general. We saw it with the Grand Director, you know, that storyline. He, he, it doesn't work on Steve Rogers. Sorry, don't yeah. do this. And I haven't looked back. I know Tanishi supposedly had a really great run. I have them. I, I can't bring myself to go back. I, I, I'm so old, Andrew. I'm such a funny guy. <laughs> I open up these books and I'm like, X-Men have an island of their own and it's Krakatoa? <laughs> yeah. uh, I just, I can't do it. I yeah. mean, I, I, I yearn for the uh, old days. Yeah, it, it's so true, though. I, I mean, what I yearn for is, and this is why I tend not to read the adventures of the big heroes from the big two companies, as much yeah. as I love them. I mean, I'm a huge Batman fan, as much as I'm a huge Captain America fan, huge Spider-Man fan. But I like reading definable runs of things with a beginning and middle and end without too much universe bleed as well. Yeah. That's oh. the other thing. When I was a kid, <laughs> I used to love the fact that Spider-Man's having a fight on a rooftop in Manhattan and Thor's flying past. I used to love that. But in the world in which we live now, the main reason I don't read X-Men comics anymore is that overarching, massively soap opera narrative that they have. It's just too much for me. And crossovers kill my enjoyment, you know. And you can't jump in anywhere. No. You know, it's, it's so unfriendly. And another thing that just tells you how far off these iconic characters have strayed from their original paths, there is a really popular YouTube comic book person who I won't name, who had a video this week where he's talking about, you know, there's a classic Spider-Man story, you know this one, where he's got the, the symbiote costume on, he goes to Reed Richards, finds out it's alive, right? So they get it off of him. And, you know, he's in his underwear, so they give him a Fantastic Four outfit and a paper bag over his head. And this YouTuber is commenting on it like, this is the most out-of-character Spider-Man story ever. It makes him look stupid. But no, this is is Peter Parker. This is exactly who he is. (laughs) It's just for you. Oh, and also it's kind of like half of that is kind of a meta Forbish man reference anyway. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, come on, it's, it's ticking the boxes. That's exactly what Pete Sparkle did. It's exactly, the kind of, it's exactly the kind of stuff that happens to him. And yeah. it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be funny. Spider-Man, I don't know if you guys are younger audience don't know this. Spider-Man's supposed to be a humorous book. Yeah. <laughs> it's not right supposed on. to be deadly serious. He used a wisecrack when he was fighting Doc Ock. He yeah. was not married to a supermodel. It's just, it's so sad to see how far off the track we are. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and we've we've arced nicely into what I'd like to uh, round out on, John, which is in addition, in addition to your incredibly successful record label career, you're actually very active within the YouTube broadcasting and podcasting space, l- like I myself am. Could you just talk us through the different the different podcasts and uh, YouTube shows that you have? Sure. Music-wise, I produce with Rich Mayhan the, the Rhino podcast every yep. other Wednesday in interviews with different artists. It just runs the gamut. One week we'll have Graham Nash. The next week we'll have Debbie Gibson. So it's <laughs> something for everyone on the Rhino podcast. I also co-host uh, Totally 80s with Lindsay Parker from Yahoo uh, yep. Entertainment. Totally 80s, just what it says on the tin. We talk 80s, we go deep. We just did a two-parter on Prince Protégés where I defended the Apollonia 6 album as being actually (laughs) better than the Vanity 6 album. So 
if that if that floats your boat, that's a podcast. And then I have Bronze and Modern Gods, which is the comic book podcast I co-host with Richard, my best friend from 30 years. And we rant about comic books just like you and I just did for the last 30 minutes. Yeah. And that's every Monday and Friday. Fantastic. And all of those shows, if you haven't found them already, you can find links to them in the show notes for this episode. And, Thank you. And- And that feels to me, John, like it's a good point for us to close out this particular conversation. Thanks so much for, A, talking me through your extremely interesting career at Rhino and and on the music side. And also, thanks for indulging me in talking about Captain America for half an hour, which I could do for three hours. And I could see that was the case. Mine too, mate. But I was was very interested. Some of the stories about your your music career I hadn't heard before. And I was fascinated how you transitioned from a broadcaster for the army into doing what you do now, which is such an interesting journey, mate. Yeah, I'm pretty much a unicorn, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. And on that note, you take care of yourself, John Hughes. It's great to see you. Take care and thanks for coming on the show. It's been great chatting with you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Hard Agree. This episode was edited by John Horsley and Kenrick Regan. And our theme music, Golden, was written and performed for this show by Liverpool's finest band, Denio. Hard Agree is a production of the Spoilerverse and myself. Andrew Sumner.